Hi friends, welcome to the Incon Show. Today my guest is Jonathan Wen, PhD, with over 48 years of experience in uh, clinical psychology. He actually helped write the script that won the Best Screenplay Awards at Cannes, and he consulted with Renee Zellweger on the performance that earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. Jonathan, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. I'm so happy to have you on board. You and I are both contributors to Aftershock, and this is the book that's just come out, and it's 50 years after the fact that Future Shock was relieved by Alvin Toffler 50 years ago, and it's been a long, long, long time. So the world's top 50 futurists came together. They wrote Aftershock, and uh, your piece is really intriguing. What I want to start off with is helping our viewers understand a little bit about you. Tell us who you are and where do you come from? What is it? What is it that you're uh, you're you're all about in this book? I'm a licensed psychologist in the state of California and in three other states. Uh, I have board certifications in clinical psychology and in forensic psychology from the American Board of Professional Psychology. I'm a person who's devoted his life to the care of persons with mental illness, and I have 49 years of experience in providing services, psychological services. In those 49 years, I have been a military officer. I have served on the staffs or faculties of six universities. I've been on a Fortune 500 corporation. I've uh, testified in court on 200 occasions. I've retired from the correctional systems of two states, namely California and South Carolina. I've published original research. And the way I came to write this chapter actually was kind of interesting. Uh, I retired from the California Department of Corrections in 2016 and uh, had some extra time on my hands. I'm still working part-time, but uh, I decided I was going to read books I never read and always wanted to. And if you were alive in, in 1970, I was 20 years old. If you were alive at that time, you knew about Future Shock. Future Shock was huge. If you asked anybody, name a bestseller, they'd say, oh, Future Shock. It was, it was so big, you can't imagine. So, but I never read it. So in 2019, I read it and it occurred to me uh, what a great article it would make to review what Alvin Toffler said and see what of it has come true and what has not. Uh, so I asked my wife, uh, Mary Ann, she's better with uh, web searches than I am. I said, who would publish uh, an article of this type? And she found this book, Aftershock, John Schroeder was putting together. So I sent him a chapter uh, and he put it in. So the whole thing was really quite providential. It just happened one step after another. That's incredible. You know, I always believe there's a way for the world to work. It's, it's the way things come together and these unknown things in our life that we don't know about and they all stack up for you. So that's, I, I really believe in some kind of a destiny, if you will. Now, yes, in your article, you've written a few really nice things that make sense from a historical perspective, economic perspective. One of these being that when Toffler wrote the book, the Vietnam War was not fully over. Uh, the economic crisis had not hit America. And some of the things that Toffler has assumed in his book 
might not necessarily be ideal given the given real life. What are your thoughts on that? Tell us a little bit more. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the big recession came in 1973, and it lasted until 1975. And I remember it well. I was there at the time. And it happened at the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, and what was so significant about it was that it came at the end of uh, 28 years of unprecedented growth in the American economy. Starting with the uh, Allied victory in World War II, uh, the American economy just grew and grew and grew. So in 1970, everybody expected, well, this is just going to continue and we're going to continue to have all this affluence. And then in 1973, the recession hit and lasted two years. And uh, for example, if you look at wage growth in America, you hear a lot in the political debates now about wages. American wages peaked in 1974. They've actually come down a little bit since then. Yeah. Uh, basically, they've plateaued, but that coincides with the end of the Vietnam War and the recession that hit us at that time. Great. Now, one of the things that has happened over these last, let's say, 40 to 45 years is the fact that people are still working, but people are working more. Uh, wages have stagnated, which means the quality of life potentially has, uh, you know, changed and become worse, maybe in some cases. There's all these economic factors behind what has happened in the last 40 years. You've written a lot about this in, in your chapter. Um, and let me, let me read a paragraph. You see the wealth that is generated by warfare, prisons, and the health insurance industry makes each of these a powerful lobby and a lasting institution in its own right. These institutions will persist despite the waste of human potential and other problems they cause. And I want to ask you about this. What is your insight about the wealth, the inequality of wealth, and these institutions that are creating this inequality? Thank you. That's a good question. And let me answer it this way. Uh, every uh, step forward, for example, every time somebody creates a company or has a success or has an invention, there are people who are left out. There are victors and there are losers. And the losers don't go away. They've created an enormous underground economy. Uh, one crime alone, counterfeiting, the counterfeiting of goods and medicines is a $2 trillion a year industry worldwide. So the losers of these economic struggles don't go away. They create a second economy and uh, it's a criminal economy and it fills our prisons. And if you want to see a waste of human potential, just visit a prison. Uh, I retired from the California Department of Corrections, and if you want to see thousands of able-bodied, healthy men just sitting idle, uh, that's, that's the place where you see it. And it's largely because they've fallen into this uh, underground economy. These are, these are the losers from the uh, uh, major economy, so they created their own. And you also share some really nice statistics in, um, in, in, in your article that, first of all, there's about 2 million people are behind bars. And uh, the study from 2006 by the Bureau of Justice that shows 45 to 60% of those people incarcerated have severe mental illness. Now, you've done this for over 40 years. Uh, what's the connection? And 
what what are we doing with these people who are incarcerated? What's 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 happening? Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Okay. You're back. Good. Uh, so the, your question is, uh, what do we do with people who have mental illness? Yeah, my question is, there's tons of people, more than 2 million people incarcerated. It's, it's a heavy to toll on uh, the system. Uh, mental illness is being very prevalent. Like, what exactly are we going towards in, in the future when it comes to um, such, such systems and such people? Well, it's a heavy toll on the system in a way, but uh, of course there are people who make a fortune off of prisons, uh, which is what I was trying to address in the article. Uh, it seems like nothing happens in America unless somebody gets fabulously wealthy doing it. And there are people who've gotten fabulously wealthy by building prisons. So uh, that's one reason we have so many prisons and, and why we have to keep them filled, because then you have to provide them with food. And there's a huge industry around this yeah. that is making a lot of money for people. What we do for people with mental illness uh, in prisons is we have uh, institutions in California, for example, the uh, prison known, the slang word for it is New Folsom. It's right next to the old Folsom prison. It's like a mental hospital within the uh, California prison system. And I, I worked there and that's where you can see severely regressed uh, people uh, we keep them in their cells uh, when, when they're too ill or too dangerous or don't want to come out, they spend their life in a cell. And if you've never seen that kind of environment, it, it really is uh, something to behold what it's uh, uh, like for people with severe mental illness in prison. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your take on what the future of the prison system should be? Because the future is not just about technology, it's about a changing world. Um, how do you see a better system uh, in the future when it comes to the prison system, when it comes to um, the people who are, who've been incarcerated? What kind of social structure are, sh should we ideally have? Well, it, it uh, is a terrific waste of human potential. And if we can figure out how to do it better, this would be a good thing. For example, you can compare us to other countries, what happens in other countries. Yeah. I've spent most of my career talking to killers, murderers, and these are hardened men. It's hard to shock them, but there was one thing I would tell them at times and watch their jaws drop, which is that Anders Breivik, the man in Norway who killed 77 people, is uh, serving a 21-year sentence, and he's eligible for release after 10 years, which is next year. So there's a story to watch next year. What does Norway do with Anders Breivik? But when I tell uh, American prisoners, murderers serving life sentences, that Anders Breivik killed 77 people and is eligible for release after 10 years, you should see the looks on their face. And they say, how is that possible? And I say, well, Norway believes that in 10 years, he will be a different person. Yeah. Which is part of the American way of thinking that could change. Yeah. Uh, in America, it's assumed once a criminal, always a criminal. And that's just not true. Yeah. 
Uh, people change. Men change a tremendous amount in the course of a lifetime. If you want to see male, uh, adult male development, psychological development, uh, work in a prison, the older prisoners are nothing like the younger prisoners. They go through a complete change. Now, the factors of that are debatable, uh, but it's true. People are much less likely to commit crimes the older they get. Excellent. Now, let's talk about the future uh, in, in terms of uh, where we're going when it comes to uh, the, 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 the imbalance between wealth generation, between the future of work. Now, there's many concepts that are changing how people work in the future, how economies will function. One example of that right now, and it's happening in the world right now, is the outbreak of coronavirus. A result of the breakout of coronavirus is that uh, a lot of people now are in China and some other countries are working from home. Uh, the demand for home-based technologies, collaborative technology systems has increased. And so some companies are seeing a huge increase in their sales. Uh, but overall, economies are suffering, manufacturing is down, so on and so forth. So there's these two different effects. What do you see as the future of work when it comes to creating equality, when it comes to creating a wage equality um, between people, between genders, reducing the gender gap. What are your insights on that? Well, let's start with uh, coronavirus, if, if you don't mind. Um, of course. Coronavirus, uh, politically, is going to have more effects on political conservatives. There's a lot of research going on now about basic psychological and biological differences between political liberals and political conservatives. And it's fascinating stuff. Uh, uh, political conservatives are much more likely to react to things with feelings of fear and disgust. Uh, if you're aware, there's five basic human emotions. Uh, that's the work of Paul Ekman. Uh, joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. And it's much easier to get fear and disgust reactions from a political conservative. So they tend to be germ-phobic, which is part of their attitude toward uh, foreigners, yeah. uh, immigrants, strangers, like, oh, we can't let these people in because they bring diseases. Uh, the 14 people in Japan, the 14 American citizens who were flown in from Japan who have the coronavirus, tested positive for the coronavirus. A political uh, liberal is likely to say, yes, bring those people. Those are Americans. Bring them home. Let us take care of them here. Whereas uh, Donald Trump was furious that they didn't keep them in Japan. So there's, yeah. that, there's that fear, disgust, uh, phobia of the uh, political conservative. Yeah. Leave those American citizens in Japan. Don't bring them home. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that's... Uh, uh, how the uh, coronavirus uh, will impact differentially politically. Uh, as far as working from home, it's a great thing. Uh, it's going to save on uh, gas emissions. It's going to reduce greenhouse gases. It's going to reduce our carbon footprint. But technology is a sword uh, that cuts both ways. Uh, these jobs are very isolating. I think your last guest was Thomas Frey, who has created the Da Vinci Society. And as I recall, he told you in his 
yeah. podcast what it was like to work alone with machines. Here's a man, IBM engineer, who won 270 awards. And he got so tired of working alone with machines. He created yeah. this society where people can work together. Correct. Uh, people need each other. People need attachments to other people. Uh, my profession in psychotherapy is never going to go away because this is one of the last places where people actually have relationships face to face. Uh, we're in danger of raising a generation of Harry Harlow monkeys. If you know who Harry Harlow was, he was a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin who in 1957 raised uh, monkeys in isolation. That is, took baby monkeys and raised them in cages without any other monkeys, even their mothers. And then when he tried to integrate these monkeys into the population of monkeys, they did not know how to behave. And when the females became pregnant, they neglected their babies. They did not know how to take care of their babies because they had not been cared for by their own mothers. Yeah. So we're in danger of raising uh, a generation of uh, people with lacking in social skills, mm -hmm. uh, fears of people, uh, don't know how to raise their children. Uh, I see uh, mothers taking their babies for a walk and the mother's wrapped up in something on their cell phone rather than paying attention to their baby. Yeah. Uh, that just makes me cringe. I mean, here's this wonderful baby they could be interacting with and, and they're not. That's kind mm. of the status of what I see happening. I don't know if any of that's answering your question. <laughs> your question was about the future of work. Uh, no, it is. It definitely is, and I'm going to ask you a couple of follow-up questions on that. But tell me, you've you've mentioned, um, and my question about the future of work was also about how do you see, uh, you know, inequality in work changing, and you've you've written uh, extensively about that in your in your article as well, the indifference, and it was more about your insights on, hey, what could the future of work be, and how will people, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now be earning a livelihood so you've given me good material on the fact that uh you know the psychotherapy will be a profession that potentially will be uh you know undisrupted if you will and uh you know how technology is changing how we are as people and that really impacts what we do and how we work and what we do in the future your what you mentioned about mothers being uh, different as an example, one of the examples is is really nice because I see this happen all the time. I mean, you walk out and you see children with cell phones, you see people glued to their devices, and it's more of a plague in our society right now in, in places where you just don't know what to say. Uh, and you see young kids glued to their devices having 8, 10, 15 hours of uh, of view time on their devices because now you can you can click into your phone and see how long has your phone stayed on screen time and what do you say to that like 12 14 hours of screen time per day is that healthy at all one day i was sitting in a doctor's office with a a, a good view of the parking lot and i watched a family walking out to their car there was a little boy about nine or ten glued to his screen and uh, the family was ignoring the little boy and he was ignoring his environment and he almost got hit by a car in wow. the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was pretty amazing until I saw it happen twice in one day, twice in one day. I saw a little boy, a 
about nine or ten, glued to a screen, family ignoring him, uh, almost get hit by a car. So that told me we've got an epidemic of this uh, kind of behavior going on. Yeah. Uh, would you mind? I'm struggling. Would you mind repeating your question? No, it was just it was just an insight that I wanted to you know talk to you about, and you've given me uh, the answer. Um, I really there was believe, more. Like, there was more I wanted to say, but I am sixty nine years old, and I'm not. No, 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 no. It's all good. What I what I what I want to say is that I put a lot of onus and and I wouldn't say blame necessarily, but on on the parents of kids who are walking the streets. Uh, and not looking around. I, I really want the parents to understand that there's there's a, a risk. It's not just exposing your kids to the internet, but but getting their attention span to wander away. There's a risk. And I think the older generations, parents of these children need to do a better job at helping them, you know, know where there is a limit uh, to, to being glued to a device. Do you, do you blame the kids or do you blame the parents as a, as a, as a psychologist? Well, I'm not very big into blame as a psychologist. Uh, I do know, uh, well, I can give you an example. I watched a mother and baby interact uh, not long ago. Uh, baby was only a few months old and started to cry. And uh, uh, baby, the, the baby crying peaks at about seven weeks of age. So maybe the baby's about 70 weeks yeah. of age. And the mother's reaction, she didn't want the baby to cry, so she put a cell phone in his face, and the baby stopped crying because there yeah. was some delightful, colorful picture going on. So the mother's reinforced for that behavior by the baby stopping his the, the, crying, which is what she wanted. So these habits get developed like that. Uh, uh, Talk about the future. Uh, the hippies of the 1960s were anti-war, uh, anti-industry, pro-love, pro-art, pro-music, anti-sobriety. Uh, the next generation of hippies is going to be anti-technology. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, yeah. Maybe they'll escape into the hills. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, if you think dialectically, yes, uh, the uh, uh, there's these advances in society and technology, but there'll be people who react to that and go the opposite way that mm -hmm. go more into human relationships and less into technology. Yeah. And this is what I was struggling to remember that uh, about uh, the economy. Like, like I said, every time you have an advance, say in work, say the ability to work from home or, or whatever, every time there's an advance uh, in the workplace, there are people who are left out because there are victors and losers. There are winners and losers in that yeah. competition, and yeah. it is competition. Yeah. And what are the losers going to do? They don't just go away. They don't say, oh, I lost, so I'm going to disappear. They create this huge uh, underground economy that we have. So is there a way to embrace them in, in an ideal world, in a, in a utopian world? Uh, can we embrace those people who've lost the competition, basically. That, yeah. To me, that's a big question. Okay, great stuff. No, thank you. That's that's really insightful. I know we're heading uh, towards the end of our, our, our session and we have limited time with you, so thank you so much for joining us. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. First of all, 
your experience of many, many decades of working with people, understanding how people work, and you're, you're the expert in, in this. You're, you, you also understand the future. You also understand many different economic, social uh, things that are happening in our world. Tell us a little bit about what is a, the true way uh, of us reclaiming our lives, uh, unlocking human potential, being amazing as people, and maybe making the world a better place. Like, what would your advice be to anybody who's watching this podcast? God is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. But we've invented uh, some things that don't fit. Uh, one of the biggest errors uh, uh, in, for example, Roman Catholicism, is, which has a billion members, uh, original sin is a dogma, meaning that people are born in a state of sin. Uh, I think that's been one of the most destructive ideas in human history. Uh, God is real. God is emergent. God is creating and recreating us uh, in every moment of the day. And when you uh, walk with God, if you're lucky enough to have that experience and know that you're walking with God, there's no other way to live. That's the best way to live. There's nothing else like it. Very well said. And, you know, they say that, you know, God is closer to you than, than your own, uh, you know, cells and your, your own, own, own windpipe. But I completely um, agree with you. Couldn't agree with you more. But uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I really hope and uh, appreciate your, uh, your insights. Now, you have, a, you have a website on. It's sacramentocounseling.org. So anybody who wants to know more about John, uh, your practice is sacramentocounseling.org. I also have Aftershock. We also have Aftershock here. So anybody who wants to read more about what you've shared in Aftershock can go and buy a copy of it on, on Amazon.com, I believe, and it's available on Amazon. Really nice read, and I really um, suggest that anyone who's watching this episode to buy the book and read John's insights on in the book because they're really revealing, they're really insightful um, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, um, indebted to, to your insights, and hopefully we'll connect soon um, uh, very shortly. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. My pleasure. Thank you, and you take care. Thank you. Hey, friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.